able to just drown in the knowledge that was a seminary course for the book of Genesis. And uh, the one thought that I kept having was, I'm so glad I've never preached through Genesis, so I didn't have to feel so guilty and convicted of how much I didn't know. Uh, it's, it's amazing when you go through a class like that, uh, just how much info is there. And um, I'm pretty sure all the Bible studies I led and, and the devotional board meeting and everything that week were way too long. So it's probably good that Stephen preached for us. And it was funny, I was uploading things, making sure they were all good. And, and then I looked and I was like, 30 minutes? When have I ever preached for 30 minutes only? And I realized it wasn't me, and that's why. Uh, so buckle up, we're going to, no, I'm just kidding. I told uh, Merv and Jeanette are not here. Merv and Jeanette became grandparents for the first time. So they're hoping to be able to meet their grandson. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the name, but uh, when was he born, Shay? Friday night? Saturday? I got, I got a text from Merv, and I can't read it because it's Irish. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I just don't have my phone on me. But they said baby was good and healthy, so they're just, they're just waiting to go uh, meet him, I think, today. So, but I promised them if they were here, this would be a short sermon. But they're not here. So, so it's okay. No, it, we shouldn't be too long. This is a very familiar uh, section for us, chapter 13. Uh, and, and it's something that I think, well, where do you always hear this passage? At weddings. Nothing wrong with that. That's okay. It was preached at our wedding, so I guess we can't say anything bad about it. But it's not the context from which we find this chapter. And, and certainly we can take all kinds of truths out of it that directly applies to marriage. So I'm not saying we shouldn't preach this message uh, or this passage at a marriage ceremony. What I am saying is that when that becomes the predominant way in which we understand that text, we start to subject things into it that are maybe not there. And maybe we start to miss the overall context. So let me just remind you of where we have been so that we can see the actual context of where this is, right? This is known as the what chapter? Oh, I love it. People are paying attention. This is good. There must be a lot of hope. Okay, the love chapter. And, and this immediately follows uh, kind of a tougher section that we looked at last week on spiritual gifts. And, and we're going to bounce around here a little bit. But when Paul says this at the end, right? So the very last sentence of chapter 12, he's, he's been talking about spiritual gifts, the importance of all of us as a body working together. Remember the Corinthians were elevating certain people, certain gifts, certain uh, types of service and saying, man, they're so important, but, but these people aren't. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you're, what's the word I used? Anybody remember? Thank you. I love this. This is good. Indispensable. We are, we are indispensable to one another. So that means that every single person, God has called for purpose and meaning for that body. And you are necessary. And so that's been the argument of everything that Paul's been going. And then he says, but I will still show you a more excellent way. His focus is going to be Corinthians and all your desire for all these spiritual gifts, not only are you misunderstanding spiritual gifts, you're misunderstanding the very reason for which they're gifts. And so we need to evaluate our hearts in that context. And so think about it this way, is this chapter, the chapter on love, in the context has nothing to do with marriage, but has everything to do with the body of Christ. You are called to love your brothers and sisters this way. Now, yes, marriage is kind of that ultimate example of Christ's covenant relationship with the church, so certainly we can apply it there. But Christian love, love that is unlike any other kind of love, is, 
is not saved only for that most intimate relationship, but for our brothers and sisters, that we would work together, that we would care for one another, that we would be there in the depths of darkness and sad and pain and hurt and disease and everything else that we're there to help, that we're there to care for, and that we're there to love. That's the context from which we find this. Uh, So what exactly is love? I remember uh, I used to have this DVD. I can't say the person's name because I can't endorse what they teach anymore. But at the time, it was okay. Uh, They said this word love is, is difficult to interpret because in English, we just have one. In Hebrew, there's several. And in Greek, there's actually several. And this word love here is agape, which is almost like a brand new word in Greek. When the church, this is what scholars tell us, is that when, when Paul's writing this kind of thing, that the church and their love for one another was supposed to be so different than regular love that they, they had a new word that was not really in common usage in the Greek. And so this word agape is important. And, and this one teacher, back to him because it's funny, uh, he said, love. We say, I love my wife and I love tacos. I said, what? That, that shouldn't be, right? We shouldn't say things like, man, I, I really love this, this carpet on the ground. And then I really love my wife. And someone else listening going, what, what's going on? How do you, which do you love more? And, and we understand in context, okay, there's maybe an exaggeration going on there. But here in this passage, the point is this word agape is Paul's way of saying this is totally different than the love you have for your tacos, or whatever else it might be. <laughs> Jason. Jason loves tacos. Um, this, this idea is, is meant to be so, so much deeper for us. So Paul's going to be very clear to us, but let me read to you Donald Pryor's summary of this chapter, because I thought this was really good. He says this, Chapter 13 should be studied in the context of the rest of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Otherwise, it remains mere words. Noble, even ennobling, but only words. When applied to a local church, it becomes dynamite. It uncovers all the weaknesses, gaps, failures, and sins in any Christian community. It is a particular challenge to any church which has seen outward success in its ministry. These words cut us down to size. They humble us because we begin to see what really matters to God. They redirect us as the body of Christ to our true calling. It is probably good for any congregation to assess its life together from time to time in the mirror of this chapter. God has a way of humbling us, doesn't he? I'll give you a good example. It's only because it's funny. I was, uh, I was biking to Johnson the other day, and I made my fastest time to Johnson, which means, right, like the competitive side of you gets excited. And I'm coming back, and I was thinking, man, I'm like, I'm going to break my record. And I don't like getting past. Jim knows this, and it's, you know, I don't like getting past. And I was, like, feeling really good, and then all of a sudden these two guys that were probably in their 50s, maybe 40s, came by me and passed me so aggressively right while I was thinking, yeah, I'm good. Thank you, Lord. Got it? But I didn't get it. That's the sad part is I, I chased them down and I caught up to them and I could hardly walk the next day. <laughs> I guess that story didn't end the way it should have, hey? Uh, I learned, no, I uh, Right? God has a way of humbling us. And sometimes we don't see it, and sometimes we do. So let's read this chapter together, and let, let's let this chapter humble us. 
Paul says this, if I speak in the tongues of men of angels, Sorry, men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. For as as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Man. This is the more excellent way. It doesn't matter how gifted you are. It doesn't matter how uniquely God has created you or, or talented he's made you so that you have just this amazing gift to do. If it isn't accompanied by love, it, it's, well, pretty clear in this passage. It's nothing. Love is the most excellent way. And so I want to invite up Lee for a moment. And I'm going to turn this on for you, Lee. Lee is going to share with us this morning about his love for composers. Just for, just for a moment. Just, what's, oh, I'm sorry. I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Oh, don't play things on pianos. I'll be on your back. All right, Lee. Who is your, who is your favorite composer? Is this working? Thank you. That was very helpful. You may go down. <laughs> Words mean what without love? Nothing. You can't even hear it. It's a noisy gong. Hit it harder, Ernie. Right? Like that's that's like think of this. If I, have, if I can speak in the tongues of men and of angels, so in, in other words, if I can speak and communicate to anyone and everyone on the entire face of the earth, even the angels in heaven, and yet I don't have love, that's what they hear. Do it again. Now, that is a wonderful sound when we're all singing and, and music is playing, and that is a horribly annoying sound that gave you a little bit of a heart attack there, didn't it? When we, when we lack love, when we speak to people, that's what God hears. When we think, man, look at this ability and this talent that I have, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it for, and that's what they hear. A noisy gong and a clang cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, what does he say? I am nothing. It's like I feel like a kindergarten class. What is nothing good for, kids? 
Nothing. Right? Like, nothing. I think it's interesting that Paul picks on two of these things, this, this overused desire for the gift of tongues, and all through Corinthians we've been talking about this, they're, they're understa- they're the knowledge that they think they've attained. Saying it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter if you can talk to anybody and everything, and it doesn't matter even if you had enough faith so that you could move mountains. I was thinking, right, like in our context, if we walked out here and I told a mountain to move and it moved, how powerful would the world think that I was? And yet Paul says, even if you could do that and you didn't have love, you're nothing. Right? God's trying to tip upside down our understanding of what we think is, man, I'm so important because I have this ability. No, no, we misunderstand that. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So if you think about it uh, in this context, Leon Morris explains it this way. He said, first century people commonly saw great merit in deeds of charity and in suffering. But Paul totally rejects all such ideas. Love is the one thing needed and nothing can make up for its lack. Right? So I'm not saying gifts of charity are bad. Right? Like don't, don't hear that. What it's saying is if you don't have love, you can offer up even your life to death for the sake of somebody else. But if it's not done in love, if it's done for you, it's garbage. We as people, my biking the other day proves it, are terribly arrogant in our own hearts. Right? And I'm not saying there's like competition is inherently bad. But when we start to find our value in that, Right? Like, man, if I pass them, I feel better about myself. That's a problem. Right? And we teach our kids that, that when they're playing their little soccer game, right? And how many of you coach, like, four- and five-year-old soccer? You are blessed. It is very, very difficult. But all the kids, right, some running to the ball and some doing cartwheels and some trying to find the butterfly, right? And, and, and you're trying to be like, okay, let's, let's do this, right? And, and you don't care at all if they score. Well, maybe some people do. You're too focused on trying to get them to actually understand what that little ball is actually meant to do. And when you're doing something like that, your motivation starts to shift and you want, man, I just want the kids to have fun. I just want them to enjoy themselves. And then it starts to matter. And then you as the coach start getting less upset. And you don't really care if you lose 36 to 1. And you teach your kids, man, it doesn't matter. But then, when we become adults, we kind of turn that around, right? And we just pretend like that. That's true for kids, but it's not true for us. Men, it's Father's Day, so I'm going to be harsh to men, just for a moment. But we're especially bad at this, aren't we? Men get in a circle, and what's the first question that they ask each other? What do you do? Because I've got to see where I line up with you. If your job is important or if my job is more important than yours, so I feel better about myself. Maybe that's not always the motive, but that's what I see a lot. We need to be people that are loving. So what is love? Paul says love is patient and it's kind, all right? Men and women, how are we doing? Patient and kind. Ryan says this all the time to me, and I don't like it. Pray for patience, Greg. It's a good thing, right? Like, no, we don't like it because what happens? You don't get patience. You get what? A lot of temper tantrums or a lot of fights or a lot of people really on your nerves that day because God goes, yeah, 
this is how you get patience. Love is patient and it's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I want to share just on a couple of specifics there. One of them is this. This last week, we had our board meeting. And we're sitting at it, and I was presenting something that, uh, you know, how do we say this? We always think we're right, don't we? We've thought it through. This is right. This is how I think. And we're sitting at a board meeting, and then this was presented, and then someone else had a slightly different take on it. And then someone else had a very different take on it. And then someone else had a different take on it. And you go around the room, and you hear other people's wisdom. You hear other people's cares. And this, so I'm studying this all week, and I'm going, love does not insist on its own way. But man, my way is really good. It's really smart. And if I can convince them that my way is the right way, then I'll get what I want. That's pretty loving, isn't it? It's just totally centered on myself. And to sit back and to go, okay, maybe maybe I do think I'm right. And maybe if I'm unwilling to listen to someone else's perspective, someone else's opinion, not maybe, if I I am unwilling to, I'm never going to grow. At the end of our meeting, Ernie said something to the effect of, when we listen to one another, we're better for it. That's exactly right. Is when we gather together, we need to not try and push an agenda that we have, but we should ask and we should actually want to listen to those who disagree, who have a different uh, point of view. Morris writes, the last two verbs in here remind us that there are many ways of manifesting pride, but love is incapable of all of them. Love is incapable of all of them. Another one that kind of stuck out to me, and and actually this one came to me at the end of my study. I had some other ones kind of written down and was focusing on, but then I came across this. Uh, So it's, it's love is not irritable or resentful. And again, it's not that it didn't occur to me because I don't have issues there. I probably do. But I came across this quote from Karl Barth, and he says it this way. And I think think we can all relate to this. The neighbor, and you can define that neighbor loosely, however you want, right? The neighbor can get dreadfully on my nerves in the exercise of what he regards as and, and what very well may be his particular gifts. Love cannot alter the fact that he gets on my nerves, but it can rule out my allowing myself to be provoked by him. Man, that one hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Love cannot alter the fact that he gets on my nerves, but it can rule out my allowing myself to be provoked by him. I had like a flashback to when I was a child. How many of you have siblings? And uh, this was my phrase at home with my, my siblings. He made me angry. And my mom and her wisdom would say what? Nobody makes you angry. You choose to be angry. Right? And it's like, now you sit there and you get the little brain-blowing emoji, right, when you're texting, right? Like, but as a kid, you're just like, now he made me angry. He said something, right? Like, we think of it as just cause and effect. But we read this, and, and that quote that I read was like, man, if I find myself irritable around other people, there's an issue in my heart, not theirs. 
Well, maybe there isn't there. I don't know. The point is it's my issue. And so I need to go, man, it's not wrong that maybe we have differing opinions. It's not wrong that maybe we just don't have a lot in common. It's not wrong that maybe some people get on your nerves. But how you respond to that is your issue. And what are we going to do about that? So let me ask this question. How are we doing? If this is the context of what love is, how much do we love? As I was contemplating that, from a worldly standpoint, I think probably all could say we love pretty good. From an agape standpoint, we got a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. Our motivation behind everything needs to be love. Uh, Jesus said, right, John 3.16, right, what does God say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever would believe in him would come, right? For God so loved the world. I want to read to you something that Jesus said in Matthew 22. Jesus is talking to some Pharisees and some Sadducees, and so it says this, chapter 22, starting verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, saying, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And you know this very well. He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Or maybe even clearer in 1 John 4, it says God is love. So when we become loving to one another, when other people see the love of the Father in us, that's when we're emulating Jesus. When we're fighting, when we're arguing, when we're resentful, when we're not patient, when we're rude, those are things of the flesh. Those are when I don't want to listen any longer. Verse 8 starts with a, an interesting sentence. How many of you use NIV? So NIV is not a bad translation. I sometimes am not fair to it. Uh, what does it say? Love never fails. That's how I memorized it right when I was a kid. That was the kind of, and I still, when I, I've been using ESV for years and I still think NIV wise. And, and I remember as I was going through this this week going, love never fails. Okay, not a bad translation, but there's a new thought here and I think it kind of misses the point just a little bit. ESV says love never ends and then clarifies all of these things, prophecy, tongues, knowledge, all those things, when Jesus comes back, none of that will matter anymore. But love continues into eternity. So why can Paul argue that love is the most excellent way? Because when we get face-to-face -face with Jesus, and we'll clarify this a little bit more, when we get face-to-face -face with Jesus, we'll learn to love perfectly the way that God loves us. Love never ends. Now, I have to jump onto my little rabbit trail that we've jumped on from time to time here. Uh, I've talked about uh, the cessationists and the continuationists, right? So the cessationists are a group of people uh, within the church that believe that some of these spiritual gifts, the, they call them the sign gifts, right? Things like uh, tongues and miracles and healings and those kinds of things. The argument is that they ceased with the apostolic age. In other words, those are no longer given to the church. And then there's the continuationists, which believe all spiritual gifts are still given to God or given by God to his church. As I kind of mentioned, I, uh, I, I do fit somewhere 
and it's on the continuationist side of it, but I do think there's a slight difference now between the apostolic age. That's next week's message, so we're going to talk about that. But what I want to point out here is this is one of the verses that, that cessationists use to say, see, these things will cease. They won't exist anymore. But I think what you have to do is you have to formulate a theology and then come to the Bible and then read that verse and interpret it based on your already assumption. So if we just backed up and we just read it, love is never going to end. Prophecies, they will pass away. Will there be a need to prophesy in eternity? No, because you've got Jesus right there. Will there be a need for multiple languages? Right? What we learn is that end times, when Jesus comes back, is almost like a reversal and a restoration of everything back to the way it was intended to be in the Garden of Eden, when there was one language. Languages came as a result where God said, no, 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 we got to change something here. Right? Tower of Babel. So tongues will not be important. Knowledge, will it matter how much we know when Jesus is standing right in front of us? So first you can see Paul's train of thought here, that he's clearly talking about the second coming of Christ. He's talking about eternity. But not only that, is I think we cherry pick sometimes. So prophecies, they're going to end. Okay, I'm a cessationist. Prophecies are going to end. Tongues, they're going to cease. But knowledge? Have you ever met anyone who goes, no, those gifts are no longer valid, and then puts knowledge in with that same thing? Not a chance. Like We're growing in our knowledge all the time. And so to say two of these three prove an idea, but the third one doesn't count, like you've got to do some real hermeneutical gymnastics to figure that one out. It doesn't work that way. Is this, is, when we interpret scripture, we have to read it and then determine what we're going to make our beliefs, not the other way around. So, rabbit trail off. Sensationists, I think this verse specifically is pretty condemning towards that idea. He says, for now we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Again, we're very clearly talking about when we're face to face with Jesus. Then he makes it very simple. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. I was thinking as I was reading that about Hebrews. In Hebrews 6, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, in that, there's, there's a context, and we could unpack that big time, but all he's trying to say is you're just staying like an immature spiritual baby, and you need to move on. You need to grow, and you need to mature. And just like we physically mature, we need to spiritually mature. Uh, just before that in Hebrews, in 5.12, he says you're, just, you're, you're drinking spiritual milk, and you should be onto solid food by now, but you're not. And I wonder how much God would say the same thing to us, where sometimes we just lack so much understanding of what's in the Bible, and the only reason we do is because we don't want to read it and spend time studying it. When we're children, the, life, the world is maybe a lot easier, a little more black and white, a little more clear. 
But as you grow up, you start to realize things. And then, and then there's this very condemning moment when you become a parent and you say the very things that your parents said to you. And you, man, when I was a kid, why would they tell me that? They're just trying to ruin my day. They're just trying to not let me have fun. These rules are crazy. These rules are silly, right, Okay, We all thought it. And then you become a parent, and you're like, I think actually my parents were a little too conservative, or a little too liberal. Maybe we need to be a little more conservative. No, I'm just kidding. But the point being is that we look at it, and we go, we start to say the exact same things. And, and, and you probably, as a, as a man or a woman, have said something, stopped, and went, oh, boy, that was my mom that just said that. Or that was my dad. It just comes out of us. Because we start to see, man, there's a lot of wisdom as they grow and as they mature. The same is true of our spiritual lives is we can think like a child all we want, but all it does is show us how immature we are. And so if we lack love towards people, we are going to show our own immaturity. He moves on to this last analogy. For now we see in a mirror dimly. And this is an interesting one because um, when I opened up all these commentaries, they all kind of took this metaphor, what I think is way further than necessary. They all would talk about how mirrors were not like mirrors that we have today, but they were bronze that was flattened, and so the mirror wouldn't give uh, a really good reflection, but it was a pretty poor one. And so, like, they really contextualized it, and I don't think that is necessary in this verse. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. What's, what's the point? The point is that right now we don't see the substance. We see just a partial. And so we can say it's a poor reflection, but it, it's not even the fact that it's a poor reflection that's the point, is that it's a reflection. Richard Pratt uh, explains it this way. He says, Paul says that a reflection is no substitute for the real person. A modern parallel would be a photograph. We enjoy clear photographs of loved ones, but those pictures barely begin to portray the wonderful people that they depict. Right, is we look at someone, we look at a photo of someone, that it's just a photo. It's not them. There's memories tied to it. There's all kinds of, that person, oh, that's wonderful, but it's not, and it can never substitute. Right, like if you, if you read much of uh, kind of the war history, is you read about all these people that have the pictures of their spouses, right, in their like on their person at all times, and they would look at it all the time. Do you think it was sufficient for them? And they would just go, oh, it's okay, we can stay here. I, I, got, my, I got the photo of my wife. It's like the same thing. Not a chance, right? Is we haven't seen someone in a long time. We might know exactly what they look like, but the meeting in person is totally different than staring at a picture, at a reflection. But notice what Paul says too. Now I know in part that I shall be known fully even as I have been fully known. There it is. Paul's saying, when we get face-to-face with Jesus, we will know him in, a, in the same kind of way that he knows us. That is, an, that is a, man, I don't even know how to process that thought. God knows us so intimately well. And all through the Old Testament, there's these examples, right? Like how many hairs are on your head and that God's woven us together in the womb and all and we're fearfully, wonderfully made. It's all there. And then to recognize that we're going to have some kind of that same kind of an idea 
of knowing God as he knows us. Unbelievable. Unimaginable. And that's what Paul's saying is right now we have God's word and it's a beautiful thing. And we can learn about him and we can grow deep in our relationship on this side of eternity. But when we get face to face with Jesus, we won't be like, where, where was that Bible verse that talked about what God looks like? Like, we're not going to do that. We're just, we're going to be known by him as he has known us. There could not be a greater truth found in all of Scripture. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of this is love. Again, love is the central, or should be the central motivating factor for anything. Just like when Lee comes up here and tries to talk and Ernie was very annoying. Sorry, Ernie was not very annoying. The symbol was very annoying as he hits it and, and, and you can't hear and you're frustrated. What, what are you trying to say? I, it doesn't matter how talented we are. It doesn't matter how many gifts you think you may have. It doesn't matter the abilities. It matters do you love others with the love that Jesus has given you. Because then all of a sudden your abilities don't matter a hill of beans. It doesn't matter how qualified you are. If you love others, God will take that love and he'll use you in miraculous ways in their lives. And I hope you've had this experience where you've, you've been with someone who's hurting or who's in pain and you have no idea what to say and you don't even know if you said anything, but somehow that person later on in their life said, you know that time that we sat and that you listened? That was meaningful to me. And you go, man, it's a good thing because I had no idea. That's the love of the Father coming out. Taking what we don't know what to do or how to say and making it become valuable and meaningful. When we as the church gather together, it's far more important to think about where does God want me to serve than where are my gifts? Now again, we're going to talk about this. I'm not downplaying the way that God has created you because he has created you unique and for purpose and meaning. But don't let that become the motivator. The motivator should be, man, I love these people. God, how can I serve them? How can I help their spiritual growth? in some maybe even very small, simple way, and then be obedient to what God has called you to do. Love is the more excellent way. And you can, and we all know this, when somebody loves you, you're going to listen to them. When you know somebody doesn't love you, you're not going to listen. So let's love one another the way that Christ has loved us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. And thank you for the love with which you have loved us. That you know us so intimately, far beyond anything we could possibly imagine. God, you have created us. And you have called us to this place, to this time. And you have purpose for us. So God, I pray that we would not look to our own abilities and talents and focus on us, but may we focus on you. God, may the love that you have given us just come out of us and may we love those around us the way that you love them. God, as we look into in this next coming week, as we look into some of these other gifts and what they mean, May we see the reason for why you have given us these gifts. 
but may our motivation always be based on love that comes from you and that you have given to us so that we can give to one another. God, thank you for this wonderful church family. Thank you for all who serve so faithfully, who give of their time and their efforts, and not to get any credit, but because they know that you have called them. God, would that encourage our hearts, and would we want to get involved in ways that you have called us? God, I pray that the love that we have for each other would be so radical compared to worldly love that that we would need a new word for it now too. People would see it and go, I need that. I don't even know what it is, but I need it. God, give us opportunities to share that love with people this week. Go with us. Thank you for all that you've done. We're excited to love you in the way in which you love us one day when we We'll get to know you far greater than we could ever imagine. Amen. Thank you all for joining us again. Of course, we're looking forward to next week when it is our last mask shenanigans. And Jordan, I will be conveniently sick and unable to sing next week. Uh, just kidding. But we're looking forward to that. Do it. Start inviting your friends, your uh, coworkers, everybody. <laughs> He's just ready to hit it again. Uh, invite people that you can so that we can connect. As Ernie said, we're going to have food and coffee and refreshments. We're just going to, man, we're just going to enjoy our time together again. We're looking forward to it. Go ahead, Ernie. Send us out. <laughs>